much was wrong in the Corinthian church, even though the Corinthian church was very legitimately a church of Christ. They were very much um, Christians. Um, nevertheless, they had, they had deviated from allowing that gospel, that focus on the crucified Christ, to affect the way that they lived their lives. And Paul's already said that one of the things that they were prone to do was um, to look to the world for how to judge what was powerful and what was wise. And so Paul was saying that they were tempted to, to look at um, either men or celebrities or teaching or different things and saying, oh, that's, that's really powerful, that's really wise. And, and Paul made the argument that the power and the wisdom of Christianity is solely in the crucified Christ. And that when the world considers power or wisdom, um, and tries to equate it to the crucified Christ, they can't make sense of those things. And so the world doesn't look at Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross and say, that was really powerful, and look at it and say, that was an example of a really good teacher having a really unfortunate turn of events and being murdered. When they look at the wisdom of the cross of Christ, that Christ lived a life purposely intended to go from humility, decreasingly so, even through death, and then to be in the grave, and that he expects his disciples to do the same, the world doesn't look at that and say, that's a really good life hack. That's a really good self-help to pursue a life of humility and self-sacrifice. And so the Apostle Paul, arguing along, is saying that Christianity and what Christianity is, is fundamentally different and necessarily misunderstood by the world. And so the Corinthian church, if they are truly converted, but they go to the world for their definition of power and wisdom, their church is going to get all messed up and their own lives are going to get all messed up in sin. And so Paul's been making this argument all along um, that they haven't gotten things right and that things are going wrong and that what he preached amongst them was he preached Christ crucified and that Christ crucified was the wisdom and the power of God and what marks a mature disciple. And so this morning, as I said, he's going to get into really offending them. And what he's going to tell them is he's going to tell them that they are immature. He's going to tell them as a church and as individuals he expected them to mature in their faith and to mature in Christ more than they had to that point. And this is, this is a big deal as we're talking about a church. It's a big deal for a pastor. Uh, John Owen said one of the biggest jobs of a pastor um, is to convince Christians that they are Christians and to convince non-Christians that they aren't Christians. And that one of the biggest errors is that someone who's not a Christian thinks that they're truly converted. And what a pastor should do is if you're not a Christian and you think that you're a Christian, the most gracious thing a pastor can do is convince you you are not really saved, that you're trusting in something other than Christ. And so trust in him and grow in him. But it's also possible for Christians to be truly converted, but to doubt that Christ is enough for them. And so a pastor for Christians who are truly converted should convince them that Christ is for them and that God is for them and their work still cannot save them or commend them to God. Well, if we take a step beyond Owen's advice, the next big thing for a pastor to do, as we see Paul doing in Corinthians, is to help people accurately self-assess how mature they are in Christ. We run into the same problem in the church. If if there is someone who thinks that they are very mature in Christ, 
but they're actually immature, they can run into a lot of problems, both in sins that can be cultivated in their life and also in a congregation as a whole. We tend, unfortunately, especially in the PCA, to think that older people, lawyers and doctors and small business owners are the most mature people. It just so happens that those people happen to go into leadership in PCA churches, and those things in and of themselves do not mean that you're mature. That society gives you the ability to operate on someone does not mean that you're spiritually mature. That you are above the age of 70 does not mean that you are spiritually mature. That you're above the age of 70 and you've been legitimately converted since you were 20 does not mean that you are spiritually mature. It could be that you have resisted the work of God and growing in maturity all of your life. That you have started your own business does not mean that you're spiritually mature. And that's where the Apostle Paul is coming to in this passage because Corinth had thought that they were spiritually mature. They thought, yes, we are spiritual superstars. Yes, we've grown a lot. Yes, we are the type of church that others should look to to realize what the pattern is for walking in maturity with Jesus is. And Paul is saying, you are still infants. And so this is a huge issue for churches and a huge issue for our particular church as we've grown from infancy as um, a church plant and going now and being able to assess our church as a whole and being able to assess ourselves as individuals and ask, how mature am I in the faith? But before we get to being able to do that, we have to get to an accurate definition of what Christian maturity actually is. And that's what Paul's doing here this morning in 1 Corinthians um, 3, verses 1 through 9. And so I will read to us from God's word. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Because this is the word of our God, let's pray this morning before we consider it. Father, thank you for this, your word. It was a letter to Corinth. Paul and time wrote in Greek and wrote this letter and had it sent to the Corinthian church, and there was a specific day and a specific time that the Corinthian church gathered together and read this letter from Paul, and it spoke to their situation and their context. Well, Lord, we believe your word written by Paul, delivered to Corinth, is still just as applicable to us and to our context because you were the one ultimately who is the author of all scripture. And through your Holy Spirit, as we even saw last week, takes these words and applies them, Lord, to us and our situation. So give us through the Holy Spirit ears to listen, humble hearts to receive, and joy in Christ as we look at this word that is all about him. We pray in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So we're going to look at Paul's um, description of what true maturity is, milk, meat, maturity. And then we're going to take a look at the object lesson. Uh, so he's going to say this is what maturity actually is. And this is why you're not mature um, in your particular church. And he gives this illustration of milk and meat. And maybe you've heard that before in different aspects of the church. But I don't want you to miss, first off, um, is how much, even though he is speaking um, pointedly, um, he's saying something the Corinthian church is not going to want to hear. Nobody likes to hear, you are less mature than you thought you were. That's not a pleasant thing um, for people to hear. It's, it's a good thing. It's a necessary thing, but it's not a pleasant thing. But the illustration that Paul is using is that he was to the Corinthian church like a nursing mother. Remember, milk in those days, it, it, it wasn't just like they went to the grocery store and, you know, Paul's here setting the table and here's a gallon of milk or, you know, steak or meat. He's saying, no, I, I fed you with milk. He's saying that, that you were like my infant. I was like a loving mother to you when I birthed this church plant here out of my own labors. And so, so don't miss, in the midst of saying hard things, Paul's gentleness and his graciousness. And so, so it happens when biblical correction that both of those things are present. Truth, calling things legitimately what they are, this, this is really where I think you are, this is really what I think your sin is, this really is how, think, how far I think you've progressed in the faith heretofore, and I love you, and God's grace is for you, and here is this as a word of encouragement that there is a way forward and, and out of this. And so don't miss in this illustration of milk and meat, meat, Paul's gentleness. Now, as if I were to let you just kind of go on that illustration and figure out what that meant, um, the way you would naturally think about that is not the way that Paul means it based on the context that we've been. And so, for example, you take whatever your profession is, whether it's mothering, whether it's engineering, whether it's you know, chemical biology, you know, whether it's seventh grade history, whatever it is, if I were to use the illustration and say, well, at the beginning, we gave you milk, but now we're giving you meat. Based on the way that our educational system works, what would you conclude meat was in comparison to milk? Well, you would naturally say, well, milk would be those first few introductory lessons. What meat would be, would be the more complex aspects of whatever topic that we're studying. And so if you're getting into, you know, biochemistry as you know, my undergraduate, milk might be memorizing the atomic table. Meat might be you know, drawing robust structures of how molecules interact with one another and how those molecules function within the body. Um, so milk and then the meat, the more complex thing. Now, what Paul is saying here is that that is not biblically how we understand milk and meat. And let me explain to you how. We, we cannot define growth in Christianity without using our union to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, for example, if you were tempted when you first heard this to say that milk are the basics of Christianity, meat 
is more complex Christianity. Milk is the Apostles' Creed. Meat is John Cowan's Institutes. Well, the difficulty in that view, which is not biblical, is that someone could memorize the Apostles' Creed. Someone could then move on to conceivably memorize John Calvin's Institutes, all four books, hundreds of pages. Someone could do that and accomplish that task without being adopted by the Father, without loving Jesus, and without the work of the Holy Spirit. There are currently people who have PhDs in Christianity, who have PhDs in theology, who are very openly and honestly not converted or followers of Jesus. So we cannot define biblically meat being more complex theology. I run into this all the time in the church. I had an early conversation with someone um, who was upset with my preaching, um, and they said, well, the, the problem with your preaching is that you focus so much on milk um, and you're not actually getting to the more complex aspects of Christianity. And, and Paul really calls us to get on to the meat rather than just dwelling in the milk. And so we had a, a long conversation about what was milk and um, what was meat within Christianity. But maturity in Christ is not being able to re-articulate the logical connections within complex theology. Does that mean complex theology is bad? Absolutely not. I do hope you do what Peter exhorts you to, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. I do hope you grow in the knowledge about this book. I hope you grow in the knowledge of the theology that holds it all together and centers in Jesus. I want you to be a constant student of the Bible, but I do not want you to define maturity as the, the, the ability to learn or to re-articulate complex theology because you can do that without any relationship with the Father, without any love for the Son, and without any filling of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here is challenging the Corinthian church's view of maturity. And so what is Paul's view of maturity in terms of milk and meat? It's not in the message. So for Paul, his message is both the milk and the meat. And we've already seen what he said. He said, my message is to preach Christ crucified in the whole council of the Bible. It was a consistent message. It was the message to those who had not heard the gospel yet. It was a message to those who were new in their faith. It was the message to those who had continued in their faith for a while. It was his message to elders. It was his message in Sunday school. and Sunday school. That he preached the crucified Christ in all of the Bible. He never got past the crucifixion of Jesus. It was in everything that he did. So if it's not in the complexity of it, even though at times Paul's message was complex, it was complex. We have Peter saying, amazingly enough, should be an encouragement to you. Um, in his second letter, Peter says, he's talking about Paul's letters. Um, and not only does he equate Paul's letters on the same level as inerrant Old Testament books of the Bible, which shows the inerrancy and full scriptural authority of New Testament books of the Bible. He says this, he says, and the things that Paul has written, some of which are hard to understand. And so if Peter, the apostle Peter is looking at his buddy Paul and saying, Paul, you know, 
some of that's pretty complex theology. Some of that is, is kind of hard to understand. It, it isn't that Paul was simple, because at times he was very complex in his theology, but that's not how he's defining Christian maturity in this passage. He's saying that Christian maturity is the Christian's ability, as he just said last week, through the Holy Spirit, to see Jesus in all of the Bible, and to put that crucified Christ into practice in everyday life. And so Christian maturity is asking, what does the fact that I follow and worship a crucified Savior say to how I deal with my money? What does, how I, what does it say that I follow a crucified Christ say with who I should marry? Or how I should behave in singleness? Or how I should be behave when I'm married? How does the fact that I follow a crucified, worship a crucified Christ, affect the way that I engage with my employer? The way that I participate in church life? Wherever I am. And so Paul's constant message about the crucified Christ, whether or not it was complex or whether or not it was simple, is his constant message what was mature or immature was whether or not people could see in his message, that's all about Jesus, and I want to make all about Jesus in all of my life. If instead they said, yes, 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 we started with Jesus, but now we want to move on to more important things. Yes, 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 Jesus is how I'm saved, and Jesus is how I become a member of the church, but don't tell me that Jesus has anything to do with my sexuality. That's silliness. I, I need more robust. I, I need wise and powerful teaching. I, I need to go out and cultivate philosophy and what the world's saying when I'm asking questions about my sexuality. And Paul's saying, that's not a mature statement. To say you start with Jesus, and then you move on from Jesus to get the world's wisdom and power, and that makes you mature? He said, that's actually immature. What maturity looks like is starting with Jesus and continuing in life with all of Jesus. I see it all the time. It's, and at times it's even hard to address. I, I see it a lot in the church when people get all weird about eschatology stuff. Eschatology or end times, if you're unfamiliar with that word. And I see people spin out. They're like exegeting Fox News and saying, well, this is the seventh horn of the third beast and... You know, I, I think that the fact that Donald Trump is in office means that we now have 13 and a half years before the end of the world. And, you know, I was watching this YouTube video and, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the world's going to end. Well, just in case you didn't know, so far the predictions about the world's end have been 100% wrong. Just so you know, no one's been right. And Jesus did not want you to focus on the end of the world, he wanted you to focus on him. So when I consider whether or not things are gonna get really bad on the national frame, I know that I'm going to be okay because I'm with Jesus and my crucified Christ. When I worry that the Christian church is about to go through a period of massive persecution, I say, that makes sense. They did that to the guy I worship. So I'm not confused if they do that to me. In fact, I'm not all aghast if somehow that that's a surprise. I expect that. 
But if you get away from the crucified Christ, you can look at things that are in the Bible or things that are going on in your life and interpret them absolutely wrong, which lead to very wrong things going on in your own life. And that's what Paul's saying. That is an immature way. And somebody might say, well, of course I'm mature. I can tell you interlapsarian from superlapsarian. I can tell you the preterist view from the millennial view from this. Of course I'm mature in the faith. And say, that's not Christian maturity. In the same way, as we're looking at moving through a period of training and finding and ordaining and installing elders, their ability to articulate the Westminster Confession or to be well-respected in their own area of business does not mean that they are spiritually mature. Their ability to love Christ and make Christ about everything that they do in every area of their life, that's what makes them spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is about a character being formed by the crucified Christ, not about a content that you're trying to put on the catalogs of your brain. And Paul is challenging, he's bumping, he's offending the, 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 the Corinthian church. Again, he's calling them immature because he loves them and he wants them to grow in Christ. And he wants them to see the root of these really ugly community-destroying, life-destroying sins that were going on in Corinth. And so when you look at your sins and your life, we have to trace it back to the fact that you have not applied at some point the crucified Christ to that area of your life. And it goes across the board, and I don't want to tip my hand. We're going to go through the rest of the book of Corinthians, and we're going to get into all those areas um, of your life that we looked at. We've already mentioned um, a few of them so far. But Paul does actually mention a specific object lesson here in this passage. And he says, of course you're immature. Don't you see the divisions that are going on amongst you? What they had done is they had said, yes, 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 Jesus. Now we want to rally behind our favorite preacher or pastor. And so some of them at Corinth were saying, no, no, I'm, I really like our original planter. By the way, this, Paul's language here about, um, about one plants and one waters is how we get the language within Christi Christendom about church planting. You, know, you go to a new place and you, a group of people help start a, a church from scratch. It's, scratch. it's called church planting. And it's actually God planting the church. And God waters it and it grows. So Paul was the original planter. And some in Corinth were like, yes, 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 Jesus. But we are all about the teaching of Paul. Paul's the greatest. We are Paulinian. That's who we are. But since then, Apollos had come, and we learned from Scripture that Apollos didn't have a great, his, his theology wasn't all that developed. Um, There's this married couple named Priscilla and Aquila who were in ministry who came along to Apollos and helped round out some of his theology. But even before he had a, a robust theology, he was a great preacher. He just, he just knew how to captivate people. And he was there in Corinth. He, he was a sincere Christian, and he was a great preacher. He needed some growth in his theology, um, which a married couple and a Lord helped him with. And some in Corinth were saying, well, yeah, like, we're all for Jesus. And, you know, Paul was, he was an okay planner. We're certainly grateful for what he did here in Corinth. But Apollos, I mean, he can really preach. We are Apollinians. 
And so there would, get, there would be these divisions within the congregation about, you know, who they loved. You know, whether it's today, whether it's, you know, we're really about, you know, Tim Keller. Or really, really about R.C. Sproul. Or we're really about John MacArthur. Or we're really about whoever it is. And the Apostle Paul is saying, the way that you look at leadership and the way that you look at preachers is not influenced by the crucified Christ. You're not taking the crucified Christ that I preach and seeing the preaching leadership ministry in the church through that grid. Instead, you're bringing the grid of the world to play where one guy is theologically profound, like, oh, that's really wisdom and power from maturity. And one guy's a really good preacher and the other's saying, no, 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 that's wisdom and that's power and that's maturity. And he's saying, that is in no way looking at that based on the crucifixion of Jesus. And he goes on to redefine identities based on the Lord God and his grace and his mercy and his love towards the Corinthian church. And so what you see moving through this passage as Paul's describing what's going on is he's saying, you focused on Paul and Apollos. You see three names. You, Paul, and Apollos. So Corinthians, woohoo! Paul's people, yeah. No, 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 Apollos' people. We're for Apollos. And then he comes and says, no, don't you understand? We don't, we, we're, we're not about Paul. We're not about Corinth. We're, we're not about Apollos. We're about Jesus. We're about the crucified Christ. And whoever ministers as an elder and whatever area that minister ministers, with whatever influence that God gives to that minister or that elder, either across the world, in the nation, or in a particular congregation, that influence, that skill, that strength, is just a gift from God and is God's work to that congregation. And that elder or minister remains a servant of the Lord, remains a slave of the Lord. So, so again, it's kind of the reversed psychology there. Like, in the same way that you have to believe something about yourself if you follow a crucified Christ. Like, if you follow a crucified Christ, you are not expecting to be someone of great power and acclaim in the world and in the world's eyes. Like that, that is not what we're after. I'm very nervous when the world likes Christians. So I think somewhere in there, that Christian has not accurately explained the gospel. Like there's, there's something in there they're missing. Like the world naturally hates Christians, and we expect them to because we follow a crucified Christ. And that was Jesus' argument about leadership. Remember when he said, this is what power is. The, the world sets up these power structures, but he said, hold on, l- l- let me give you a, an object lesson. And he, he takes off his outer clothes, ties it around his waist, and he washes their feet. So, so what he's doing is he's saying, like, if you're going to worship me and follow me, it means you're going to naturally be under me, and I'm setting the world's view of me on the base level. That's what Jesus did. So if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you are going to have to be a servant because the guy that you worship was a crucified servant of Almighty God. So by setting that bar so low about worldly acclaim, Jesus is saying, you're going to be under that if you follow me. So, if a servant of God, if an elder preacher pastor is coming in as a servant of God, a slave of God, the Greek word is doulos, if you are going to follow him, 
Are you going to create a fan club for him? Or instead, are you going to find yourself, if you think that he's of great influence, and if you think God has made him as an elder in the church, if he's a servant, then you are going to be under and following a servant. And so you're taking on the aspect of a servant because you're following a, as Paul says there at the end, a fellow worker, a fellow servant. So he said, if you see Paul or Apollos as a celebrity that you're going to retweet and favorite and like and post everywhere, then you have misunderstood the cross ministry of an elder and a pastor. You cannot rightly appreciate the work of an elder or the work of a pastor blessed by God without becoming more humble because of their message and because of what they're called to do. Paul later in Corinthians will give an illustration of a triumphant general coming home. And the, what would happen with the triumphant generals as they would come home is that the, the city would come out of the city, out of the city walls, to welcome the general or the king. And they would line the road. And what the general would do is he would walk in front as the conquering hero. Behind him, all of his generals, in order of honor and rank. Behind them, all of the conquered slaves who came after that, who he had taken captive. And Paul says, do you want to know where ministers go? Do you want to know where Christians go if we're talking about that? Christians go at the end of the line. They're behind the captives, behind the slaves. They take the lowest of the low when it comes to the world's perception. And so Paul's argument here is if, if there are divisions among you and you're creating fan clubs around celebrity pastors, you have not listened to their message, nor have you applied their message to your, to your own life. If, if you're going to follow the teaching of Paul, it's going to be towards humility. It's going to be towards exalting Jesus, not Paul. That was his, his, his argument as he was talking about there. So he ends by saying um, in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So through the cross of Christ, he's now redefined the way that he's dealing with those different people. It's no longer Corinthians, Paul and Apollos. In fact, their names aren't even mentioned in verse 9. But one person's name is mentioned three times in verse 9, and that is God's name. So Paul and Apollos are redefined simply as God's workers. They don't even want their name. And he goes through and says, listen, I'm, I'm just the planter. You know, Apollos is just the guy that tends to it after it's sprouted after the ground. God's the one who gives the growth, and we are only God's workers. You know who you are? You are not the great mighty Corinthians. You're not the one that people should look to for Christian maturity. You're God's people. You are God's building. You were defined by God's work. And as soon as we bring the cross of Christ to how we look at our church and how we look at our pastors and elders... It redefines it, and it puts it in the right priority and order. So we're not trying to have competing factions of, I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Tim Keller, I'm for R.C. Sproul, I'm for John MacArthur, I'm for J.I. Packer. It's, I'm for Jesus, and I am grateful for whatever servant helps me to love Jesus more. I'm grateful for the pastors and elders that God's given to the church because those are servants of God under shepherds that help me love Jesus more. And I want to follow them, not as someone who is great or has a claim or anything else, but as a servant of the Almighty God, because all of us follow a crucified Christ.
So you see Paul defining maturity as being able to take the crucifixion of Jesus and apply it to all of life. You see him use it in a very real object lesson there in Corinth as these divisions and factions. And you could see how those factions would start to be healed if they started to do what Paul is telling them to do. These two parties could say, you know what, I, I, I have been really divisive. And it's not about Paul. Um, it's really about Christ. And the, the Apollos people could say, you're right, we've, we've really exalted Apollos over Jesus. And we need to repent for that. And we've been kind of nasty to you because we've thought that Apollos is. But we all serve the same Jesus. It's, we've been really wrong. And we're so sorry that we've treated you that way. You can see as people start to have those conversations and have their lives reoriented around the cross, how there would be healing in a local congregation and how a local congregation would grow in maturity. So as I, I, you know, I, I look out in our congregation, I want to see us not just as individuals, but as a congregation grow in maturity. It's not just that we all have our own individual beliefs. Our congregation as a whole functions with a set of beliefs. And you know, part of John and I's job as elders is asking ourselves the question, you know, how mature is Christ's covenant? What are our corporate beliefs? Um, whether those are explicit or implicit, whether they've developed along the way, whether they're just, this is who we are and these are our cultural blind spots. How are we as a congregation growing and applying the crucified Christ to all of life and the way we treat one another and the way that we live our life? And so the real tension that I think is, is for you and for us and for me as we come to this is that we are afraid of being exposed as being less mature than we really are. I just, I think we all need to be honest. I, I, don't, I don't think any of us, if we, if we were, because it has to be confronting um, that, that we are that way. We are, we are, we are naturally self-deceiving people who want to see ourselves as more mature than we are. That, that, that's our bent in life. And so, you know, the, the old adage is, you know, if, if you were self-deceived, would you know it? And the answer is no, because you're self-deceived. You know, we, we naturally create caricatures of ourselves that aren't true. And those characters are, caricatures are typically better versions of ourselves. If, 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 you don't, if, you don't, if you want to think that's true, just go look at your social media profile. It is the best version of you that you want other people to say. Is, is it really you? Is it in our attempt to be authentic and real and honest with all of our friends and followers? Is it really the real you? When you have a fight with your spouse, do you post? What's going on now? Oh, I just fought with my wife. I think I'm being a jerk. I hope maybe I'll repent. You know, wait for all the likes to stream in. If you're going through a period of deep, dark spiritual depression, you say, I'm I'm having difficulty believing that the gospel is true today. Do you, do you post and tweet that out? You don't. You, you, you tweet out, you post out, you profile out, whatever it is, a better version of you, a more mature version of you, the version that you want other people to see. And that is ultimately very dangerous. And what we need is we need people who love us and we need a God who loves us to take the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to say, brother, sister, you need to see this. But we are naturally fearful of that, of being exposed and being revealed. And our first response is to shoot the messenger and to be angry. 
how dare you, how could you, I'm not, you really are, you know, whatever our responses are. The beauty of the Christian life is that the cross of Christ even overcomes that fear and anger response. So we are united to a crucified Christ. Jesus, Christian, loved you specifically, and there was a point in time that you were dead in sin. Like, not just immature, dead, not alive. And Jesus came through the power of his Holy Spirit, uniting you to him, which caused you in space and time, on a real day, at a real hour, to be born again and be made new, a fresh infant in Christ, spiritual new birth, justified by the declaration of God that you are now defined by the finished work of Jesus, who has atoned for all of your sins and given you a perfect record of righteousness, adopting you into the family of God, into the family of God as a son or daughter. And then, even better, that Holy Spirit began a gradual and progressive work of sanctification, growing you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That is what happens when we apply the cross to our conversion. That is the story we're living. Now, that story is not alive, new birth, through forgiveness of sins, growth in sanctification for the rest of my life as I continue to seek forgiveness of sins. So every Christian is in a process of growing in maturity. All of you are. Right now, in our midst, there is a least holy person and a most holy person. Definitively. And that most holy person may not be me. And so as we go through, we can't see, we can't know one another. It's not like we have a spiritual scale on the side of our heads and, you know, this is how holy that guy is and this is how little holy that person is. But we have to admit that all of us are works in progress. All of us are at some level of maturity. All of us are prone to see ourselves as more mature than we really are, but Jesus has given us the freedom to admit all of that. To say, of, of, of course, I, I currently think that I am more mature than I really am in Christ. I currently know, according to the Bible, that I do have blind spots, and I'm trusting the Lord God in Joe Holland's life to progressively conform me more into the image of Jesus until I die and I'm made fully in the image of Jesus. And so we don't need to be scared about admitting or finding out where we really are in the process of maturation. We don't need to hide and pretend and come in with our Facebook profiles on display when we come in to worship. We have in Christ what we need to embrace where we really are in Christ. But more than that, in that moment of surprise, because it has to be surprise. Sin is always surprising. It's always, oh wow, didn't, didn't realize I'd, I'd done that. And wow, I had no idea that I, I was capable of that. And 
in the surprise of realizing your immaturity or your sin, there's an even greater surprise in the grace of the Lord God. So you might still be going with me and say, Joe, I, I, I agree with you. I'm really scared to be open and honest with where I am in Christ and how mature I am. And I hear you saying that the church is supposed to be a place where we can do that because of Jesus. But I'm, I'm still really reluctant to pursue an accurate assessment of my own spiritual maturity. Well, what's held out for you is when you find out where you are maturity-wise in your growth in Christ, the solution to wherever you are, which will probably be a shock to you, is more Jesus. It's not self-loathing. It's not beating yourself up. It's not having to sit a few rows back on Sunday morning. The solution, according to Paul, is to enjoy, revel in, press into, think about, pray to, love, vocally worship, the crucified Christ who is for you because that is how you grow more mature. So if you find out I'm less mature than what I think it is, oh no, what do I do? Run to the Lord Jesus. Worship the Lord Jesus. Put Jesus on display in more of your life. Go to the really hard problem areas and say, I, I, I love and trust Christ. And I do believe that Jesus has something to say about my finances and my sexuality and my work. And I want to take the truth of the crucified Christ and I want to go there. And so the invitation is not just do something that's hard and be vulnerable. The invitation is to Jesus, is to come in the light where he is. He's not in the darkness, he's in the light. You come in the light, but I'm going to be exposed. Exactly, you're going to be exposed, but you get to be with Jesus. I pick exposure with Jesus rather than hidden and not with him. Because I, I think it is definitively better. If we're doing a cost-benefit analysis of hiding without Jesus or being real with Jesus, I want to be real with Jesus. So where does that leave you? For some of you, it might leave you realizing that not only have you misjudged Christian maturity, but that you are not a Christian. And Paul's message to you is still the same as it is to a Christian who's been walking with Christ many, many years. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus. Grow in him. Become born again this morning by repenting and believing in Christ alone for your salvation. It, it, it may be that you are walking with Jesus. And I, 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 I want to say this so clearly. You have to have people in your life who are either willing enough or you invite enough to speak into your life grace and truth about where you really are. Right now, can you think of people in your life either that you've invited or have just because they love you so much have spoken into your life and say, I, I think you need to see this. I think this is an area of growth for you. I, I think that that is a, a pattern of sin in your life that I want to see you, you, you grow in. And there's Jesus for you and he loves you so much. You, we have blind spots. We can't do it alone. You have to have relationships where people tell you how you really are. And to get there, you have to be willing to receive that without attacking them. Or they will not do that anymore. And so you, your job is to cultivate relationships where you invite trustworthy people to speak into your life grace and truth. If you're married, one of those people is definitely your spouse. And one of the things that you expect as you're in a church is one of the things that you vow is one of the things that elders do. And one of the things that I hope community group leaders do is that we are an accountability to one another to bring assessments. I, 
I would love if you want to come to me and say, you know, based on your knowledge of me, um, how mature do you think that, that I am in Christ? I would love to have that conversation with you. Um, I really don't like offending people. Um, and I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of conflict. And that's actually unbiblical. I probably need to enter into more conflict as a person. Um, but I would love to tell you and give you an assessment of where you are. Ask your community group leader. Based on the times that I've been in community group, where do you think my growth areas are? How, how mature do you think I am? If you're on a team, talk to a team leader. If you have a, a friend or whoever it is, that, that is what we should do and expect of one another, or we will cultivate blind spots that are untouchable. That's what the church is supposed to be, and that's what Paul is doing in Corinth. Corinth didn't say, Paul, we really need your help because we have recognized places of immaturity in our life in church, and we really need you to come in and help us they were saying, we're set, we're great, we're awesome, everything's wonderful, the church plant's growing, and Paul's saying, no, we, we need to talk about a few things, because I love you, and because I nursed you like a nursing mother, and I want you to grow in Jesus, not in the ways of the world. And so, that's the direction, and so, I just encourage you lastly, if you, if you, if you miss one thing in this, you take, take thing away, define maturity, spiritual maturity, biblically. It is so important. Even if you don't know where you are, you don't have friends, you're leaders, you're in church, and division, and, and all of those things. Maturity as a Christian is the work of the Holy Spirit helping you to see Christ in all of the scripture and apply Christ to all of your life. In that, I hope that you learn more complex things that you understand right now theologically. I hope you learn more about the Bible. But maturity is when the Holy Spirit helps you see Christ in all of the Bible and begin to apply Christ in all of your life as he is crucified. And that's what we long for for one another in our local church, not just individuals, but that we grow together in that. It's what I long for you as, as your pastor as an elder at Christ's covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is true in every part. We thank you for this message, so fit for any church, not just for Corinth. I pray, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, that you would grow Christ's covenant, not just as a collection of individuals, but grow our church and make us more mature as we seek to apply Christ to all of our lives, repent of our sins, believe in him more, worship him more robustly. We we long for this, and even now as I pray, Father, we come to you asking for your mercy in this, that you would do this great work in us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we stand to respond in song.